Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. This is Season 3, Episode 3. When we left off last week, the tape had just cut off as Yoko wondered what was going to happen after the session, if they would return to Kenwood, and if Cynthia was coming back. In this episode, my special guests Chip Mattinger, Aaron Torkelson-Weber, Robert Rodriguez, and I pick up where we left off. As the recording starts again, George Harrison is playing a repetitive guitar riff while Paul sustains chords on the organ. John joins in on another guitar, and the playing is so slidey and out of tune that there is a good chance he is playing a prototype fretless electric guitar that was given to George by the company Bartell in Los Angeles the previous August. John would play it again during an interview in the studio with Kenny Everett two days later. So Kenny, how are you going? Oh, it's wonderful. Are you... What kind of a guitar is that? Very strange looking Fretless thing. guitar. Nobody's boy. Get out of this We don't get to hear what Yoko needed John's handprint for. She mentions an event in July, which was probably John's You Are Here exhibition that would be held at the Robert Fraser Gallery from the 1st of July. As Ringo joins in this noodling session, Yoko comments off mic about John's guitar playing. Yoko says, it's too bad that I'm not close to anybody and then goes off on a brief tangent about her and John's auras. Mm-hmm. 
Switching topics again, Yoko remembers recent news about her husband Tony Cox and daughter Kyoko. Peter Bendry also became an assistant to Johnny Yoko and would work as a handyman at Tittenhurst Park. Victor Herbert was a benefactor of the arts who sponsored the Experimental Living Theatre in New York City and must have been an acquaintance of Yoko and Tony from before they moved to London. Later in August 1968, as the Arts Lab was struggling for financing, founder Jim Haynes wrote unsuccessfully to Herbert for help. Tony was uh, difficult and was trying to monetize the divorce based on John's name. So that is uh, one reason he stretched it out so long. That's another, another conversation altogether is, is, is their separation from Kyoko. Um, and on a tangent, John and Yoko used their search for Kyoko as a reason for them to stay in the United States. They knew where she was, but they were they were trying to use that as a as a reason uh, to stay in the states. It was just very striking for me how unconcerned Yoko was about Kyoko being out of the country and not knowing where her daughter was. Just that something that is completely outside of my experience as a mother. And it was almost incomprehensible to me. It was a few lines, and then she just moved on to talking about John. Yoko's art and being an artist is more important than anything else to her, than to Kyoko, than to John. Her her artwork and being able to produce is uh you know, throughout their entire time together, she's always kind of tried to stay on the same level of John, which is it's an extremely high bar to hit. I'm glad you brought that up. That was something that jumped out at me too, the Kyoko bit, because I kept wondering, is there going to be any kind of manifestation of concern for her kid? And then she delivers that, but then it's back to John, like immediately. Well, and when I read that, in the, I read the transcript before I listened to the audio, and I thought, okay, I have to hear her voice when she is discussing this. And there's really no change of tone or evident emotion in her voice when she's talking about, again, Kyoko being out of the country. And Chip has discussed how 
Yoko's art is the most important thing to her, bar none, and that was understood. But it's a very difficult approach for me to wrap my head around that you can be that cavalier, I suppose you could say, about not knowing exactly where your child is. She was self-aware to say, I hope she doesn't resent me when she gets older. Right. Any further commentary about Kyoko going missing was cut short by the arrival of an unlikely visitor. So, so Fred is here, and probably we have to see. He's their film director. The recording cuts off. John and Paul went to the front reception room at EMI to meet with Italian director Franco Zeffirelli about an unknown project. There's actually a photo of John Paul and Zeffirelli in the uh, reception room at EMI. They had originally scheduled to meet on the 17th of May, but it was postponed. Zeffirelli had made his name as a film director with two film adaptations of Shakespeare plays. First, he directed 1967's The Taming of the Shrew, starring Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and then followed it up with Romeo and Juliet, which had premiered in London in March. Interestingly, Zeffirelli had tried to get Paul to play the part of Romeo opposite 16-year-old Olivia Hussey the previous year. That would have been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Paul declined, and the role was performed by 17-year-old Leonard Whiting. According to Hussey, Paul sent her a telegram to tell her she made a beautiful Juliet and they ran into each other at the Bag of Nails nightclub later in 1968. Journalist Jack Bentley gossiped about a possible romance between them in his Sunday Mirror column in the 9th of February 1969 issue, but there was no truth to it. It's possible that Zeffirelli was considered to direct the Beatles' idea for a Lord of the Rings film adaptation, but this idea was a non-starter, and J.R.R. Tolkien refused to give them the rights. As Yoko's recording begins again, We hear George continuing to practice his incessant guitar riff as John detunes the strings of the fretless guitar and Ringo on his snare, all seemingly focused on their own ideas. Paul interrupts John to ask him if the next overdub is just organ and drums. What follows is an indirect way of saying they don't want George to play, but they don't say that explicitly to him. John says he can't hear how George's riff fits into the track because it's a bit quick, but offers to try it and listen back. It will still be a while before they stop jamming and attempt the overdub. Thank you. 
we don't need to play it. Anybody can play it. It'll be like playing it. Okay. Can you give Paul the organ? The recording cuts again. Yoko gives us the first example in this recording of how she gets insecure and possessive of John when his attention is not focused on her. When the recording resumes, she then gives a long declaration about intimacy, vulnerability, and genuine contact during sex. She and John had first consummated their relationship a month before, but she would not have her first miscarriage until November, so it's unlikely that Yoko is already pregnant by John at this point.
John is heard calling for George Martin to get a microphone. And Yoko continues. I think it's almost like a, a strange, paranoid relief that you feel. Almost like saying, oh, uh, a relationship built between a taxi driver and yourself, which is like a one-time thing. Last chance. After two unsuccessful marriages, Yoko seems to say she only wants to make one more serious attempt at a relationship with John. There, there was a, a phrase she said that really jumped out at me in view of the bigger context and picture going forward. Playing straight is so difficult. And she made the reference about something she had in Grapefruit about uh, when you want to kiss me, kiss a mask. So it, it sort of underscores this need she felt apparently to put forward a public persona, which as you know, as, as Chip alluded to, and we all kind of know, that, that that was John and Yoko. That was what they did. They played it as we're being straight and sharing our truth and this is who we are. But there was definitely an aspect of hiding behind a persona to their stuff. And she makes the observation that it was easier for her to have casual sex when she's thinking about her from days of promiscuity than it was to anybody that was important to her. What, what, do, you, what do you make about that? I, I think that's kind of natural for most people, right? I mean, if you're not taking your partner seriously as any kind of long-term relationship, it's going to be a lot more fulfilling a need in the moment than it's going to be something that you're treating as something very, very important that you see having a longer life beyond that encounter. 
John asks again for a mic for a guitar amp. Recording cuts. Yoko and John talked a lot publicly in the first few years of their relationship about communication. John even said he believed he could communicate with the other Beatles on a telepathic level with no verbal communication needed. Results varied, as we know, but here is Yoko wondering if she and John understand each other. As the recording resumes, John tries again to tell George not to play, or at least not to play anything that will step on Paul's organ part. Another attempt is made to overdub the organ and drum parts, with George still playing guitar accents. As the overdub take breaks down, Paul sings an out-of-tune harmony. George is not getting the rhythm of the part he's trying to add in the chorus and seems to thrash at the strings in frustration. 
I'm not sure what point Yoko's trying to make about John's weight and how that reflects on their relationship. The music drowns out some of Yoko's speech, and it's hard to hear. The recording cuts again here, and some time passes before she resumes. Since Yoko takes a break here, so will we. Join us next week as we continue our exploration of her 4th of June 1968 audio diary. If you enjoy listening to Give Me Some Truth, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next week, same time and place, I'm your host, Obadiah Jones. (laughs) 